Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, we're continuing our series all about abortion, bringing you stories about abortion that you might not know about. And today's story is the Jane Collective. Now, I want you to imagine. It's 1970. You're pregnant, and you need not to be. But Roe v. Wade is a few years away, and abortion is still illegal. Now, before this landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision, terminating a pregnancy meant taking a gamble on a back-alley abortion provider. Maybe they'd be competent. Maybe they wouldn't be. But when you're pregnant and desperate, you don't really have a lot of options. For women living in the 60s and 70s, this was a reality. And on Chicago's South Side, women began organizing an underground network to do something about it. In 1965, Heather Booth was a 19-year-old college student at the University of Chicago. Her friend's sister was pregnant and needed an abortion. Now, Booth had been active in the civil rights movement and connected her friend's sister to a doctor willing to perform an illegal abortion. After that, she started getting more and more calls from women, housewives, students, and the siblings of police officers. That's when Booth knew she needed to start a network. Known officially as the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation, Heather Booth started an underground network to connect women to abortions using the code name Jane, as it was still a crime. I remember this ad that said, pregnant, need help, call Jane. So I called Jane. Jane ultimately served over 10,000 women before Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in 1973. In the beginning, the network connected pregnant women with doctors. But eventually, they realized that many of the people providing abortions weren't doctors at all. That's when the women in Jane started performing abortions themselves. The women were not doctors, but according to the Chicago Tribune, their skills were attested to by a doctor who risked his license by doing post-operative checkups on clients. At this point, the Jane Collective was providing abortions for as many as 60 women a week. Jane's facilities were raided by the police. During the raid, police asked all the women to identify the doctor who was performing the abortions, obviously expecting to find a man. But there was no man. The group was arrested, and the media called them the Jane Seven. After being indicted by a grand jury... Their case was only dismissed thanks to the Supreme Court's legalization of abortion in 1973. After this quick break, we'll hear from Heather Booth about how Jane got started. Today, I am so, so humbled and thrilled to be joined by the legendary Heather Booth. Heather, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, you are. You're, You're a legend. Well, I'm so glad to be talking with the amazing Bridget Todd and what a service you're doing to the public, providing this uh, information out about some of the stories that are not as well known. Exactly. That's really what we want to do with this series. Everybody feels like they know a lot about abortion and about, you know, reproductive health. But there are so many stories about abortion in choice that people might not know. You know, the Jane Network was such a critical thing for these women who were living, you know, while before Roe v. Wade was enacted, and, you know, people don't even really know about it. Glad to describe uh, both how it came about, and, and uh, I appreciate your spreading the word to let people know that if we organize, we can change the world, we have changed the world, and we need to change the world. And the story of organizing the Jane Network is, is one important example of that. 
So let's talk about Jane. So when you started Jane, you were just a 19-year-old student at the University of Chicago. So what was your life like before you started Jane? So a little bit about my life and also a little bit about what women's lives were like in general. Uh, for me, I was brought up in a family uh, that was very loving and believed that people should uh, follow the golden rule. We should treat each other as we wanted to be treated. And I carried that with me. Uh, I became active in the civil rights movement. In 1964, I went to Mississippi with the Freedom Summer Project, and some of you may have heard about it because that was the time when the civil rights movement was recruiting northern students to come down to Mississippi because in Mississippi, black lives did not matter in 1964, and they thought that the attention of northern students might bring additional uh, visibility and potential power to shine a spotlight on what was going on in Mississippi. And during that summer, the three young men, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, were killed at the hands of the Klan. What people may not know is that while they were looking for the bodies of the three men, they found bodies of other black men whose hands had been bound or feet chopped off. And those murders weren't even investigated once the bodies were found until years later. But because people organized, there was a Voting Rights Act within a year. And Mississippi now has more African-American elected officials than any other state in the country. I mention that because it was formative for some of the ideas that led to Jane, which is that you have to stand up to unjust authority. If you take action, you can make change. And that sometimes there even are risks. But together, we can really build a better world. I returned back to my campus, and a friend of mine had been raped at knife point in her bed in off-campus housing. We went with her to student health to get a gynecological exam for her, but was told that student health didn't cover gynecological exams and she was given a lecture on her promiscuity. Now, because we sat with her, they called it a sit-in. But over time, because people protested and organized, now student health would cover gynecological exams, and people would be given careful, com uh, comforting uh, counseling. And there also is uh, uh, support and attention about the crisis of rape on campus. Those changes happened because people organized. We still have much further to go. There still are attacks on women's health. Planned Parenthood is under attack. But we make progress when we organize. And those were some of the lessons that I learned also from the civil rights movement. On the campus, to give a sense, though, of how women were treated broadly, um, I formed a, pulled together a group called the Women. Radical Action Program, or RAP, W-R-A-P. And we did studies about um, and supported women to promote women's positions on campus. This, it probably was the first uh, campus women's organization of the new and emerging women's movement in 1965. And we found that professors gave four times as much attention to men's students as to women's students. We called it significant response. 
how often would a teacher actually engage with the students. And because of that and other things, we found ways to support women on campus. Um, we found there was discrimination against women faculty members. Uh, they mostly were kept as adjunct professors and not allowed on a tenure track. And there were other issues. So people need to understand the emergence of Jane within the context of lessons from an emerging movement in civil rights, a context of um, changes going on in the society where, on the one hand, uh, women were at the universities and uh, entering into, into public life, and yet were not treated equally, so there was this emerging women's movement developing, and also in the context of uh, the values that many of us shared, believing that this should be a, a country that treated all people equally, uh, gave people equal support and, uh, and respect. I love that. So really, one of the big takeaways from what you've done with Jane is that organizing and people power can really change culture and change laws and change lives that you know, oftentimes we feel, at least I feel, overwhelmed that, oh, just little old me, what can I do to, to change this? This seems so bad. We're up against so many fights. But actually, if, you're, if you really work hard and organize, you can change things. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. To bring us up to Jane, to explain how my involvement with that and how that developed, against this backdrop, um, a friend of mine, told me his sister was pregnant and was nearly suicidal because she wasn't ready to have a baby and she wanted an abortion. I had never thought about the issue before that I recall and I've never had to face the issue myself, but I said I'd try to do what I could do to help, again, sort of as part of the golden rule, trying to do one to others. I went to the network of uh, doctors from the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which was the civil rights medical arm. And I found a doctor, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, who had a clinic on 63rd Street in Chicago, a friendship clinic. Um, I didn't know his history at the time, but he had been a dynamic civil rights leader in Mississippi and came to Chicago when his name appeared on a Klan death list. I called him up. He agreed to do the procedure. But actually, I didn't really think much more about it. But word must have spread because a short time later, someone else called. I thought it was a coincidence. And then word must have spread and someone else called. At that point, I realized there really was a broader problem that needed to be addressed, and being an organizer, I decided to create a system and called it Jane. Over time, the women of Jane themselves performed 11,000 abortions between 1965 and 1973 when Roe became the law of the land. And the experience of Jane, both improved the lives of the women who came through, who were looking for a way to decide when or whether they could have a child. It changed the lives 
of the women who were in Jane, letting them know what they could do to improve the lives of women uh, on a broad scale. And it also provided a basis, uh, giving people confidence, I hope now to say, we can make change if we organize. So let's say that I'm a woman who calls Jane. Can you walk me through the logistics? Once I call, what happened? Well, first there were two um, kind of two or three eras of Jane, eras. <laughs> um, when I first started it, it was a very small service. It just kept growing and growing. When it started, someone would call up and ask for Jane. And uh, even before they said they were asking for Jane, I knew immediately there was a sort of hesitant pause on the phone, and I just knew immediately what they were probably calling about. Um, they'd say what that they usually said some version that they were pregnant um, and were looking for an abortion. For some women, we do the counseling on the phone. We then try and arrange a time where they could come in and have a longer conversation and could talk with them and uh, find out what the details were, how long they were, had been pregnant, what their medical history was a little bit. Um, and then we just go through the details of what to expect. Um, they'd want to know what, how long does it take? Would there be pain? Are there side effects? What do you need to do afterward? How to take care of yourself? If there are any uh, medical complications, uh, what they need to do, who they call. We go through how much it cost. Initially, Jane cost $500. Um, though we negotiated down the price as the number of people came through. We then went for two for the price of one, so we got it down to $250. We then even sometimes got three for the price of one. We sometimes uh, would ask for a special uh, arrangement if, uh, someone didn't have money, um, and then we arranged where people would go, where they would meet, how they would get picked up, um, that someone should be with them to care of them, um, you know, to be with them as they as they left after the procedure. Uh, that was the first stage of Jane, where. I was doing the counseling, and Dr. Howard had explained to me in a lot of detail uh, what was involved. Dr. Howard died of natural causes, and I found another person to provide the procedures. His name was Mike. And uh, we basically had the same process, uh, though he uh, had a suburban uh, effort. And um, the numbers were increasing so much as the numbers of people coming through. I was about to have my first child, and I was very busy in many other things, getting a graduate degree, um, working on other social change issues. And I realized I couldn't handle it all just myself. And so I decided I needed to recruit other people to be involved with this. And I'd go to meetings, 
and at the end of the meeting would say if anyone wants to be involved in uh, abortion counseling, uh, please see me. And I recruited a number of people. We did a training and uh, made sure that everyone understood the process and would provide the high quality of care that we wanted to see for all the women who came through. Um, And then with that, I turned over the effort to another group of women. Uh, Jody Parsons and Ruth Sergal were the two lead women who uh, helped coordinate it at that point. As the numbers increased, more hands were needed. One person doing the procedures wasn't going to be enough. And then uh, it also turned out that the women that were helping Mike do the procedures, and then Mike shared that he actually wasn't a licensed physician. And they thought, well, if he could do it, so could they. Now, though this was the women doing the procedures, starting to learn how to do the procedures, it was actually probably safer than this medical procedure being done in a hospital or clinic or other setting. Partly because it was illegal, uh, everyone wanted it to be as safe as possible so that no one would be harmed. No one would be, uh, there wouldn't be a, uh, an adverse effect. It also was a women's culture. We cared about women. And so the priority wasn't the profit-making. It was the care for women and for uh, their wishes. There also um, was the only thing that they were doing, and so there was a lot of attention on it. It's not like you were getting lost in the shuffle of, oh, am I doing an appendectomy or am I uh, doing a a different procedure? Um, In fact, at the... um, after Roe became the law of the land, there was a study done by a University of Illinois program called the Preceptorship, uh, which was about entry into uh, positive medical care within Chicago. And they did an analysis of the outcomes from Jane and the outcomes from clinic service for abortion and found that the results from Jane were more positive than the results in a clinic setting. Again, I think for the reasons that I just mentioned. So uh, at that point, the women started to take on doing procedures themselves. And in the course of that, there was a larger group that was recruited to actually be the service, which is what we called it, uh, what they called it, Jane or the service. And as women came in, there was a, a front or one apartment, someone's apartment, that was designed in a very cozy, homey, uh, supportive way. Uh, sometimes there were kids there and a number of, wait, of women who would be waiting for their uh, own procedure uh, would gather there and, uh, in a supportive environment. And then they would be taken to the apartment where the procedures would be done, and then they were supported and given care while they were recovering from the procedure, 
and then would be sent off with full information um, about what to do if there are any issues, as there often are with any medical procedure, and given help, then uh, told numbers to call and uh, people could be in touch with them uh, afterward to make sure that everything worked out okay. So that was the broad process. There's a book about Jane by Laura Kaplan called Jane, I think it's Jane and Abortion Story. There's also a movie about it. And actually, I'm now told there's at least two Hollywood-made movies that are being made about Jane, as well as a new documentary. And there are more details of it captured uh, in the book uh, that Laura Kaplan wrote about Jane. So, Heather... Now, you're a part of this really robust tradition of Jewish activism. I actually read someplace that at one point you wanted to be a rabbi, but that you heard that women couldn't be rabbis. Do you feel like your background as, you know, part of the robust legacy of Jewish activism and social change work, did that also impact your work with Jane? It did. It was part of my moral uh, upbringing. I believed, <laughs> as uh, it said in the Bible— uh, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. Saying justice twice because it's that important. Really believing uh, that the stories of the prophets uh, should guide us in some ways. That uh, it's the people who should rise and not just those uh, in wealth and power. Um, there also was a history of struggle of uh, you know, the Passover story, Passover's coming, and the story of people even going 40 years in the desert to a, to a land of greater promise uh, to, to escape oppression. And I believe that that was a tradition that was worth embracing. So that was part of the moral upbringing that I had. Uh, and have tried to carry that on into uh, the organizing work I've done. And since that time, I've tried to carry it on in so many ways. I started a training center for organizers called Midwest Academy. People, I encourage your listeners to pursue Midwest Academy because it's a, it's a place to learn the skills of organizing. Um, th- their website is www.midwestacademy.com. Um, I've also ended up running some large-scale organizations or advising them. I was strategic advisor for the Immigration Reform Campaign, the Alliance for Citizenship. I ran the campaign for financial reform that won the Dodd-Frank Bill. I uh, was the coordinator around the marriage equality uh, campaign. Um, I just was the field director around the campaign to stop these uh, tax breaks for the millionaires and billionaires that will mean that there will be an excuse to make uh, cuts in Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, and education and other essential human services. So the struggle continues. And right now, people, I think, especially need to learn this lesson, that even when time seems the most difficult, we can make progress if we organize And if we organize, we can change the world, and we need to change the world. 
I could not have put it better myself. These fights are still fights that need to be fought. And we can get complacent and we can get comfortable. But as you said, we need to be organizing. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're in the fight doing this work with us because we need you, Heather. And I'm so glad that we have you. Well, and I'm so glad that we have you uh, to spread the word, spread the message. I'm so glad we have those who are listening in. I hope they'll take, they probably have been taking action. We need to continue taking action and unify and give people confidence that we can organize. And when we organize, even in times that seem the most difficult, we have changed the world in the past and we can change the world for the future. Let's take a quick break. Well, Spinty listeners, now I know abortion can seem like an issue that we no longer have to fight for like we did in the 70s, but that's actually not true. In March, Mississippi's governor signed a law banning abortion at 15 weeks, the earliest abortion ban in the country. The law was temporarily blocked by a federal judge. And some states only have one clinic left that provides abortions, thanks to restrictions specifically aimed at forcing providers to close. Reproductive freedom is constantly under attack. So let's stay vigilant and get organized to help protect our right to access. What did you think of Heather's story? Let me know. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, and as always, we love getting your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. 